From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. AM radio transmissions. The subject was darkness. Historical darkness. Unlike your eyes, you can't close your ears. And that is a good thing, because there's so many great things to listen to. Monsters under the bed. Of course, you can't be everywhere to hear them all, but ReSound can. Ghost recordings. We listen to things overseas and on the web, from traditional documentary formats to experimental soundscapes and everything in between. And once we pick what we think is the most interesting, we bring it to you on ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Adolescent kissing games. Every year, the Third Coast International Audio Festival puts out a call for short documentaries. We call them short docs, around five to seven minutes in length, that centers around a theme. This year, the subject was darkness. Historical darkness. Disease. Rituals of the memory loss slash holes. Producers sent in over a hundred proposals, each one a different shade. The Third Coast chose four to be produced. Blindness. Dinner at the Blind Cow, a pitch-black dining experience in Switzerland. Posthumous photography. Memento Mori, a family's penchant for taking photos of the dead. Nighttime baby sounds. Listening to Jamie, a newborn's babblings, or a pig hunting for truffles. Historical darkness. Skin color. And the color is black, author Rick Moody's exploration of the word. All that and a little thirst. Stay with us and it will all become clear. Artists, a womb symphony, monsters under the bed, nighttime field recordings. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is many things. It's a website, thirdcoastfestival.org, a series of public listening events, a radio show, you're listening to it, a competition, a national broadcast of its award winners, an annual conference, and newly commissioned work, the Short Docs. Johanna Zorn is the festival's executive producer, and we talked to her about why the Short Docs became a part of the festival. A word of full disclosure, I pretty much owe my entire career to Johanna Zorn, who gave me my first job in public radio in 1984. That being said, let me ask you, Joe, why'd you hire me? No, I'm just kidding. So, Joe, really, um, why did the curators of the festival, who usually listen and organize and administer, want to have a hand in creating work? Yeah, that's a great question. We really, really enjoy being curators, searching here and there, seeking out interesting audio work, whether it's on the web or whether it's being presented in installations or on the radio from other countries, that sort of thing. But we felt like we wanted to have an opportunity to bring new work into the world. And we also wanted to have an opportunity to show that a radio documentary can take on all different forms that can sound many different ways. There isn't one sound of a radio documentary. And this seemed like an opportunity for us to do that. And we also wanted to bring some short work into the world as well. Um, A lot of people think that documentaries need to be long, and there's so much you can do in a short form to bring a documentary style to the radio. So for all of those reasons, we wanted to create the short docs, and it's been very exhilarating. Johanna Zorn, executive producer of the Third Coast International Audio Festival, and my boss. So there's an unusual restaurant in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's not the food they serve or the decor that makes it unique. No sign guitars donated by rock stars or anything. It's the fact that the restaurant is pitch black. No light anywhere. 
producer Adam Burke wanted to do a short talk about the place, but he wasn't sure what form it should take. Should he take a blind date to the blind cow? Should he follow a waitress around for the evening? Finally, he settled on the idea of eating dinner at the blind cow and bringing the audience to the table with him. Dinner at the Blind Cow, produced by Adam Burke. Enjoy your meal. The lobby of the Blind Cow restaurant is an expansive space. High ceilings, hard surfaces. On a summer evening, giant panes of stained glass throw puddles of candy-colored sunlight across the floor. The hostess roams the room, setting out ashtrays and candles. Not one visitor takes to the chairs. They're putting bags and coats in lockers. Some pace idly, others chatter near the reception desk or survey the giant menu on the wall with its fine appetizers and entrees. But my attention keeps darting toward the heavy black curtain in one corner of the room. And after what seems like forever, a slight woman with close-cropped hair and motionless eyes slips into view. Good evening. My name is Elizabeth Sinstad. You just call me Elizabeth in the dark, okay? You walk behind me, put your hands on the shoulder, and this is how I will guide you in. Elizabeth takes us behind the curtain into a curved passageway padded on all sides with black material and dimly lit, a kind of airlock for light between the lobby and the dining room. Now, if you need something, you call my name. But call me urgently, please, if you don't feel well for whatever reason, because no one would see that in the dark. Okay. You are not wearing any luminous watch? No. And uh, no handy switched on? No. Okay, you're feeling okay? Yeah, I feel fine. Sounds like it. Okay. Yeah. You move in a line, hands on the shoulders of the person in front of you, shuffling your feet. You have the sensation that you're headed down a slight incline, but that's an illusion. Apparently, this sensation is the eyes handing over navigational control, perhaps reluctantly, to the other senses, as the light gets dimmer and you finally pass through a second curtain into total darkness. Sight is taken away from you completely and replaced by sound. Eating at the blind cow takes some getting used to. Some diners experience a sense of claustrophobia or fear. One woman said she felt as if she were wrapped in cotton. And when I meet this Swiss couple, Philip and Andrea, they're holding one another in the dark. Now it's, it's a little better, it's a bit uh, more secure, but... Uh... But at first you were very um, helpless, I think. They could do with you what they want. <laughs> Once seated, you set about exploring the small province of your table setting. It's surprising, for example, to reach out for the water glass and discover how far away it is. In this fathomless space, the blind waitresses possess a kind of sorcery, they materialize beside you, out of nowhere, to fill your glass or take your order. You can hear them moving through the restaurant, avoiding collisions using finger snaps and the word Achtung, which means attention. And they move with incredible speed from dining room to bus station to kitchen, carrying hot coffee, clearing plates. Meanwhile, the eyes aren't giving up without a fight. They blink and struggle in their sockets, straining at the blackness for something, 
anything to look at. Annalise, one of the waitresses, tells me most visitors go through this. They're always a little scared and they think, oh, how can I eat my food and how can I orientate myself in the dark? But as soon as they are inside and they are sitting, most people start to relax. And once they notice that they don't have to try to see anything, they really get comfortable. As food and drink flow from kitchen to table, the dining room warms with conversation. Here is coming to you. The woman next to me insists I try an onion ring off her plate. Yeah, I think it's onion ring. Yeah, it's crispy. It is crispy. Crispy and fried. Mm-hmm. And cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brent and his sister Bettina from the United States are having a bit of a time trying to share food. And during a toast, he hits her in the head with a wine glass. So half of this conversation has been us searching for the things that were on the table that we just put down. And we don't know who is serving us. We don't know whether something has just happened. <laughs> like I, during this conversation, I just realized I have a tort here. I didn't know the tort was here. <laughs> I didn't until, until I went to reach down for my coffee. <laughs> In some ways, this whole experience is a humorous look at how visually dependent we are. But my waitress Elizabeth points out that sitting down to eat in the dark is a rare opportunity for the other senses. Say, if you're eating a carrot, the eyes see this carrot and the brain gets the message. Then your nose constantly say, well, well, it smells of, of leeks or of, of something totally different. Because that's out of the question. The eyes have already dictated the, the, the fact. I remember my own dinner in the restaurant, fumbling through the tricky business of eating salad without getting to see it. I tried using a fork, unsuccessfully. I cheated handling the dripping leaves of lettuce with my fingers. And halfway through this discourse between hands, mouth, and plate, I came upon something spherical, the consistency of goat cheese, a dollop the size of a gumball. What was this thing? I gave it a taste, definitely not cheese. Incredibly rich, smooth, and while it was decidedly not meat, it had the fatty persistence of pâté. I sat around in the dark waiting, and eventually the report from Tongue Central came in, like a slow fax, that this strange, unearthly delight was an egg yolk. Back in the restaurant lobby after three hours in the dark, the soft light and covered fixtures are aggressive, almost violent. Is it the sheer intensity of light that short-circuits the other senses? Or is it a power play by the eyes themselves? That's probably a question better left to neurology. Anyway, I think Elizabeth was right. Getting the eyes out of the way is a good thing. The other senses have a chance to actually do what I guess they would very much like to do, but can't because the eyes are very dominating. Darkness brings us back to the native language of ears and reminds us that we live in a world of clattering cutlery and sumptuous voices. And it poses a question that yesterday seemed utterly obvious. What do you have on your plate? What do you have on your plate? It's a question worth asking, with your hands out and your eyes closed. 
Dinner at the Blind Cow by producer Adam Burke, who revealed to us after he produced the story that he was one of the only journalists ever to actually see the inside of the restaurant, which he actually wasn't supposed to do. But that's another story. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. Regular listeners of ReSound may remember our next producer from a piece she made called Chicken Diaries about her pet chickens. This time around, producer Jude Fletcher of the Whiskey Voice turned her attention to her relatives who have an unusual habit that she's always struggled with, taking pictures of the dead. This is actually a long-practiced, old, bygone tradition called memento mori. But that didn't make it any easier for Jude to accept. One of the ways she tried to come to terms with it all was by producing this piece, Memento Mori. One morning, I opened my junk drawer, and a photo I had long forgotten about had worked its way to the top. It was a picture of my Uncle Jelmer, in his casket, hands folded, a close-up. His pale, made-up face with its tightly drawn lips creeped me out. I didn't shoot this picture, and wouldn't. But some in my family think it's a perfectly good way to remember a loved one. Dead, not alive. Me, I just don't get it. Finding that photo of Jelmer inspired me to go back to Story City, Iowa, to see my mother's family, and to find out why they take these snapshots. First stop, Aunt Mavis's house. Mavis, who was married to Jelmer for 53 years, was happy to show me her photo album. We sat side by side on the living room couch, going through her pictures. Well, this album was taken at the time my husband passed on. However, this um, particular book backtracks just a little bit while my husband was still fairly well, I would say. And then there's also a picture of the drill team that another granddaughter was in, in a parade in a nearby town. This photo on this next page is a a five by seven. It's of my husband in the casket. Why did you think it was a good idea to take pictures of Jelmer? Well, it's just closure for me. It's something that uh, you only go through probably for your spouse once in a lifetime. and, And you like to be able to recapture what it was like. How do you feel when you look at them? Well, I didn't look at them again right away because it was a little difficult. But as time goes by, I'm very glad that I have them. While I sit with Mavis flipping the pages, it's a strange experience. One page smiling drill team, the next dead Jelmer. A once common practice in the 19th century called memento mori, taking pictures of the dead, is now almost considered taboo, macabre. Back then, professional photographers would come into the home after a death to make a last portrait. These portraits would be displayed like any other, on a wall or in an album. But when's the last time you saw that at someone's house? You don't. Hardly anyone takes them anymore. And of the ones that do, they don't show them to others. It's a very personal thing. Dennis Soderstrom has been the local mortician in Story City for 46 years. And here's his take on it. We've had some discussions of this at some of the international meetings. A little bit of it has been 
explained uh, trying to create a memory picture for the family if we can do that and retain that. For instance, uh, we had one family where it was a young person that passed away, and when uh, they did, we set the casket visitation area up so that it was just the same as her bedroom. With uh, She had like 400 stuffed animals, and the family did take some pictures that way. That's the idea of postmortem photos. They're memory pictures, and like some memories, they're not always welcome. When I returned home from the first vacation I'd taken by myself at 19, my cat, Kiki, wasn't at the door to greet me. That cat meant everything to me. When I asked my mother where Kiki was, she showed me a Polaroid of my cat in a box. Stiff. Dead. Just in case I wanted to see him one last time. Fourteen years ago, when my mom died, someone in the family took a picture of her in her casket and mailed it to me. But who? I hadn't seen it at Mavis's. I had a nagging suspicion that it was my Aunt Lois, and I only had to go next door to find out. Needing a Confederate, I corralled my brother Fletcher into going with me. There's Uncle Myron. With Aunt Lois, I hit the jackpot. Here was the album, just full of dead people. Everyone was in there. Okay, I'm starting with Arnold, and his picture's there if you're ready for that. That's Arnold in his casket. Isn't that awful? And this is your husband? Yeah. But they didn't even know if they should show Arnold because he was kind of puffed, puffed up, I think, in his face. Now it starts with Dad. And then Mother will come next. There's there's Mom. There's Mom. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, dear. There's your yellow roses. Yeah, I remember this. Oh, my God. Oh, dear. Remember the... IVs. Yeah, yeah IVs in her she hand. had the IVs in her mm-hmm. hand, so the handkerchief is there to cover the, I'm sure. the punctures. But remember, we had them take that nail polish off because they did that in San Francisco. <laughs> oh, oh, and it was, oh, really? and really? we were so shocked. And I interviewed Mark Bokey, and he remembered that. He said, "Oh, I thought your mom had just had her nails done." <laughs> <laughs> and he took it off because mom didn't wear nail polish ever. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's right. Has anyone in the family ever said anything to you about taking these pictures of dead people? Just my Aunt Ida. She didn't want the picture of her mother. She said, I don't think you should have pictures of mother when she's dead. And so I'd like you to get rid of that picture. And of course, I didn't get rid of the picture. I thought, well, she's my grandmother. I could keep it. But you still have the picture. Yes, I kept the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Lois had extra photos of Mom at her funeral and offered them to me, just in case I wanted to make a book of dead relatives. While I firmly but politely said, no thanks, I did end up taking a Polaroid of my grandma in her casket. My brother asked, what are you taking that for? I think I took it because of how shockingly awful she looked. These pictures have a sort of sideshow quality to them. They repel yet intrigue, but they don't have cherished memories attached, and I'm not the only one who feels this way. Here's my cousin Lori. I actually try to avoid looking at them. (laughs) I just don't agree with taking pictures of people in caskets, and I would never do that. Do you have any particular response? It doesn't capture the essence of the spirit, and it's almost like if you 
get a letter from a dear one and you framed the envelope. I mean, it's like saving the empty body. It's not the spirit of the person. They're not there anymore. So I don't understand keeping a picture of someone in a casket. My brother says that it's hard for people to let go, to say goodbye, and that post-mortem photos constitute some sort of strange souvenir of the deceased. Now that I'm home again, one thing is clear. I have to get that album from Lois, the one with my mother in it. Otherwise, it'll end up at her estate sale, picked up by some post-mortem photo collector, or even used on the cover of some mediocre band CD. So I called Lois and asked her if I could have her album someday. She fretted over the fact that it wasn't complete yet, that the last two pages were still blank. I pointed out she had plenty of material to fill them, and she should start on volume two now. I mean, my great-uncle died just last week. So, there you go. Sometimes I think it's best if you just don't open the drawer. Now I have more dead people coming into my house, arriving by the bookful, which makes me worry. Am I just as morbid as the photos? Or, even worse, I've inherited the family trait. Memento Mori, produced by Jude Fletcher for the Third Coast Festival. If you have any feedback for us about this piece, like would you want to see pictures of the dead? You know, because Jude would be more than happy to show them to you. Or are you someone who would do anything to avoid Memento Mori? Email us your comments or questions to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. All new parents are obsessed with their babies. And if you happen to be a radio producer, there are times when only a straitjacket can prevent you from putting your child on the air. But no one has done it quite like BBC producer Hugh Levinson, who discovered that instead of adorable chirping and cooing, his newborn son produced an encyclopedia of unexpected sound effects every night. Here is Listening to Jamie by producer Hugh Levinson. On a winter's night in England, the darkness seems to go on and on. The sun vanishes before four in the afternoon, and it's gone until after nine the next morning. You can almost hear the hiss of the blackness. Two centuries on, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's words echo through the dark. The frost performs its secret ministry unhelped by any wind. At my side, my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. It is calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. At 2.45am on a dark night, 13th of November, Jamie arrived, our firstborn. Alison and I had expected an explosion of sounds. Crying, lullabies, toys, coughing, wailing, cooing grannies. All the noises you'd expect around a newborn. 
Well, I'll read that first bit then. And then, yeah, I wrote this on the 20th of November, which is a week. He was one week old. I could cry and cry to think you're finally here on the outside, not the inside. Little movements you make remind me of movements you made inside me. The little bottom in the air, the spasm of the fingers and the hands, the look of careful concentration on your face when faced with a new experience, a trip in the sling or in the pram. But at least we thought, during those short periods when he was asleep, things would quieten down. Now, I don't know why I wrote this. He doesn't tap dance, does he? No, 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 he'll be no trouble. <laughs> it is calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. That's normal. That's what Coleridge says. But we were wrong, and so was he. As Jamie went to sleep, the audio show started. He was as noisy asleep as awake. Well, almost. Do you remember? Do you remember what the night was like? Because it was so dark. Because it was winter. Yeah. It was sort of punctuated by, by, by these percussive sort of noises. And they'd sort of, he'd hammer a little hole in the peaceful night, wouldn't he? What could I do but dig out my mini-disc machine and hang the mic over the side of the cot to Alison's amused disgust? As the night wore on, Jamie put on a carnival of sound. Some human, some animal, some industrial. Snuffles, wheezes, snorts, mini-snorts, grunts, mini-grunts, trombone. Steam whistle, air escaping from pistons, steam brake, industrial press, depth charge, fingernails on a blackboard, backwards guitar, rim shot, dolphin clicks, seal, rosa, baby elephant, lost baby elephant, dear babe that sleepest cradled by my side, piglet. Whose gentle breathings, heard in this deep calm, piglet rooting for acorns, fill up the interspersed vacancies, piglet getting desperate, and momentary pauses of the thought. Here's a synopsis for a story that's never been written. The female character is extremely pissed off at the good suggestions from her partner on getting the baby to sleep, which always work. <laughs> it it ends horribly. <laughs> what were you up to, Jamie? What distant lands were you visiting in your sleep? I know that when we dream, we process everything we've seen and heard during the day. And newborn babies are hearing a lot for the first time. All those muffled sound waves they felt in the womb are now bombarding them loud and clear. So are your snorts and grunts the sound of your dreams? All seasons shall be sweet to thee, whether the eavesdrops fall heard only in the trances of the blast, 
or if the secret ministry of frost shall hang them up in silent icicles, quietly shining to the quiet moon. As the winter turned to spring, then to summer, as the darkness retreated and the light and warmth seeped into our bedroom, your snuffles and hoots gradually receded. We got more sleep, but still I missed your bizarre nightly sound show. Of course, you hadn't exactly fallen silent. Your journey to the limits of human vocalisation had just moved into the light. The sounds you were making in your waking hours were becoming just as varied and colourful, and the volume knob was way up. Well, it's July, and we're on holiday in northern Spain, and we've just discovered this uh, abandoned church up a gravel path, and there's plaster peeling off the walls, and it's quite dark in here, and there are bats in what we think is the vestry. But one of the things about being here is that Jamie has discovered echoes. Listening to Jamie by producer Hugh Levinson. Hugh's a current affairs reporter for the BBC, so he's done hard news and more artistic features. But there was something about the idea of darkness in the short dot call for entries that caught his eye and ear. I had these recordings of the baby, and I was just desperate to do something with them. And when I saw this, I thought, aha, this is it. This is it. Finally, I can do something with these, because I just thought they were lovely. Uh, and they were literally gathering dust um, by the side of my bed. And I thought, well, finally, I can listen through to them, make a piece with them, and um, have some people listen to it. You know, this piece, uh, of course, unlike any news piece, you know, is full of music and prose and poetry... Uh, I'm wondering about the choice of that poem. That was literally something that happened at the time. We were listening to him, and I got up one night, and as I say, you know, night and day had completely mixed into one thing, and I remember going into the lounge and finding an anthology of poetry and saying, I know, I know, I know there's a poem about listening to a baby at night. Um, I know there is. And then I remembered it was Coleridge's Frost at Midnight. And then I got it, and um, we read it together, and we just thought, Coleridge is talking rubbish. You know, it's a wonderful, lovely poem. And, and of course, the point Coleridge is trying to make is a completely different one, which is about how his babe, baby has been brought up in the countryside and doesn't need to suffer from the pollution of cities and so on and things like that. Um, but he keeps on going on about how silent his baby is. And we think, well, you know, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, where are you coming from? The, 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 this is completely unlike our experience. So I wanted to put it in there as this example of... Uh, a complete contrast, and and this very famous poem, which in our experience was completely wrong. So you had recorded these just basically as an obsessive parent, like many parents, before you saw the call for entries for the short doc. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just thought these sounds were so bizarre. I had to record them, and I think, um, as I mentioned in the piece, I think my wife was 
quite disgusted um, by the fact that I was, you know, hauling out this sort of vaguely professional equipment uh, and had this big microphone, this big bare mic and hanging it over the side of the cot, which could disturb the baby, although he, he didn't seem to notice. And, and there I was just, you know, doing my thing uh, of recording. And I've never done that at home before, but this was just so weird and bizarre I thought I have to get this for posterity and and I'm pleased I did because it suddenly stopped and um, and then I didn't have the chance. How old was he when he started making such bizarre sounds? Probably about four or five months so it started when he first came home from hospital um, after the first couple of weeks when he was completely inert and and then we were just amazed really it was just very funny and, and quite often we'd, we'd lie in bed and he'd be in the little Moses basket next to us and we'd just be giggling uh, um, listening to him which is a pretty awful thing to do to your own child but it was so extraordinary we made up some of these names for, for what we thought the sounds were and then I got the idea of recording them. Now one of the things about the sound use in the piece is the way you describe Jamie's grunts and snorts as human and animal and industrial. And it sounds like you guys were naming those before you did the piece. And I'm just wondering about that genesis of that section of the piece where you're we're listening to them and you're naming them and they're layered. And I think this is one of the parts of the piece that will stick in people's minds when they walk away from the piece after the piece is done. And I'm just wondering how that how, what your thought process was about that section? Well, I, I, I suppose if I can dignify it with calling it a thought process, that, that, that there were two <laughs> things. I mean, I mean, one was we definitely had some of the names already. So, so backwards guitar um, was something we often talked about, and baby elephant um, was one of the names of one of the sounds. Because actually, backwards guitar was one of the most frequent sounds he'd make, even though I didn't get that many on tape. Um, but he quite often used to do this kind of weird '60s you know, West Coast kind of thing, uh, um, through his nose. And um, so, so, so that name came quite early. And then uh, when I was making the piece, my original idea was to actually sample the sounds and to make some kind of musical palette from them. Um, and then I, I realised that that would make them sound too artificial. And actually I wanted to make a kind of music or rhythmic music with a whole lot of them. So literally what I did was I recorded all these sounds cut them together as tight as I could, and then I realised I could have them over each other. I had so many of them. I could just have them over them over each other as this kind of continuous backdrop, and then at certain points bring up one particular sound after another uh, and, and give it a name. Um, so that way it sounds like there's a kind of backbeat of all this kind of strange noise going on, and then these other ones popping out on top. That, that was the impression I was trying to give. Almost without exception, from the time you mention his birth... He is very ever-present in the piece as kind of this constant background. And I'm just wondering, is this like, you know, form-following function? Absolutely. I mean, that's what it's like, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure you know, as anybody who's had a small child, and he was our first, that that he's, even when he's asleep, he's there and present and is in your thoughts. Uh, and um, when you're at work, whenever he, he's in your thoughts and his presence is there. And when we were sleeping, he was he still seemed to be awake, there, there didn't seem to be the same difference between sleeping and waking as there is with an adult. So uh, I really wanted to keep the sound of him all the way through the piece because that is how it is, exactly. What did your wife think of the final product? Was she just loving it or did she just think you were, you know, off your nut? 
uh, I think she quite liked it. She, she, she was highly embarrassed about her bits uh, and kept on saying, oh, you know, you've got to cut those out. You've got to cut those out. And then um, I made a different version for um, a program um, called Weekend America. They asked for a short version after the short docs went out. And um, they asked me to cut her out. And um, so, so rather brutally, I did so to make it for time. And then she was very cheesed off about that <laughs> in the end when, when she got removed from the piece. But um, my real uh, um, regret about the piece was that I didn't record all the conversations we had at the time. If I'd recorded what we'd said about it, as well as recording him, it would have had a completely different flavour, and I wanted to reproduce that. And thankfully, she'd recorded this journal, and she agreed to, to you know, read some of the less embarrassing bits. And, um, and, and that was the nearest I could get to it. But I suppose the, the, the lesson from that is just record everything all the time, because you'll want it someday. Well, how did it, how did the piece go over when it was played? Well, well, I was really delighted at the conference because you know it, it got some great laughs, and and one of the things I, I, I really believe in is cheap laughs, even at the expense of your own child, and um, so, so I was really delighted. <laughs> Producer Hugh Levinson talking about his 2004 short documentary, listening to Jamie. Subject was darkness. So, nightmares, lost in catacombs, drowning in air, blindness. Are you afraid of By taking the record, putting it in a neutral position, and spinning the record backwards, the needle will go in the opposite direction. You say that I've never heard of anything like that before. Probably not. But many, many people have. But many, many people have. And this is what I'm talking about, that I believe that we can hear this with our subconscious mind. I want to explain to you what their message is. Nighttime baby sounds. Night artists. Womb symphony. Nicknames. Now we spun this backwards. In a studio. And the tape of what we've got is about to come up. They sing backwards in human voices. Now mind you, it made sense on both sides. It didn't, it wasn't a bunch of garble on one side and played it uh, in reverse and it made sense. It made sense on both sides. They sang in human voices in reverse, listen, we've been there. Then they sing in reverse now, because I live, serve me, there's no escape in it, Satan, slumber parties. Driving theaters. If we gotta live for Satan, Master Satan, the message that they have all together that they wanted you to hear in a subliminal way, on the backer in reverse was this: Listen, we've been there. Because I live, serve me. There's no escape in it. Satan. If we gotta live for Satan, Master Satan. Listen to it as they sing their message together. As you see, this is ReSound. If you're just joining us, today on ReSound, we're playing short docs, short documentaries about a specific topic that are commissioned each year by the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The two subjects we're exploring today, darkness and thirst. Our last dark doc is called The Color is Black, and it was produced by Rick Moody, author of The Ice Storm and Purple America. This doc features an excerpt from Rick Moody's memoir with digressions, The Black Veil. 
Moody worked with composer Jerome Schmidt to explore darkness in words and music to create this doc. It's a catalog of the color black, from geography to history, from physical attributes to revolutions. The Color is Black, by author Rick Moody. There's the blackness of black comedy, dark humor that provokes laughter and makes the audience ill at ease. There's the semi-solid black capped plug of greasy material blocking the outlet of a sebaceous gland in the skin, otherwise known to teenagers as the blackhead. What about blackouts? As when alcohol rushes into the bloodstream, delirium of blackouts. The blackness of the New York City blackout, its looting of shops and general disorder. The blackness of black holes, somber objects of enormous density, such that even light lacks the velocity necessary to escape their gravitation. The blackness of the black dwarf, exhausted core of an exhausted star. The incredibly copious black fauna of planet Earth, such as the Ursus Americanus, or black bear. Likewise, the black widow spider, whose neurotoxin is sometimes fatal to children. The blackness of the black bird in dead of night, the black rat, the black swallowtail butterfly. We have such black places as the Black Belt of Alabama, known for its fertile soil, the big black river of western Mississippi, and then places darker and darker, known for negation, hellishness, until we arrive at the black hole of Calcutta, where it is said by some that 146 British prisoners were kept overnight in a 15 by 18 foot cell, after which only 21 survived. Now the advancing figures of black-garbed teenagers in their schoolyard massacres across our nation. The blackness of Black Friday, September 24, 1869, when two investors tried to corner the market in gold. The blackness of Blackwater fever, that dangerous form of malaria. The Black Death, which appears to have begun its journey in eastern China following the Silk Road traders until it arrived in the Mideast after which it devastated most of Europe. The brutality visited upon those who preceded us here, for example, the Blackfoot Indians of the Upper Missouri who were pushed to the brink of starvation when the white man killed off the buffalo.
the blackness of black Americans forcibly imported here from sub-Saharan Africa in the slave trade, first into the West Indies by the Spanish and later by the British monarchy, the blackness of their descendants such as Crispus Attucks, the blackness of Nat Turner, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, the blackness of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Now we are demanding the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. Black magic, the putative means by which the witches of Salem attempted to bring down the Puritans, the most potent ritual of which was the Black Mass, which follows the Roman Mass, but with everything upside down. And two last things to remember, the Black List, wherein people are deprived of livelihood because of political belief, where all is fear and dark stratagems, and finally the black rain of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that precipitation which falls over a city after the three-part destruction of blast, heat, and radiation. The human color is black, primordial, eternal, heartless, full of sorrow, upon every forehead the burdensome ornament of black conscience, and in every heart a recognition that the strip mall and the subdivision and the offices of the online cosmetic surgeon are all built upon the color black. The Color is Black by author Rick Moody. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. Queen, with their song Buzzbag Drive. 
Now we switch gears a little and move from darkness to thirst. Darkness was the subject of the 2004 short docs, and in 2003, the subject was thirst. A note here. While in a brainstorming session to try and think of the short docs theme, someone got thirsty, literally, for a drink of water, and Eureka, a theme was born. Really, that's what happened. I'm not kidding. But the implications of thirst are so great. Thirst for knowledge, thirst for water, desire, need, and sustenance, all in one word. Here's one of those four short docs called And I Walked by Anne Hepperman and Kara Oler. This is a soundscape illustrating how the thirst for the American dream translates into literal thirst as illegal immigrants risk their lives crossing the desert from Mexico to the United States in search of better-paying jobs. They play a game here, but nobody watches from a box seat. The players are called wets by those who hunt them. They cross a hot desert, a dry desert, and they cross with one or two gallons of water. They walk 30, 40, 50, 60 miles in order to score. The goal line here means not six points, but a job. Here are the rules. Get caught, and you go back to Mexico. Make it across, and you get a job in the fields or the back rooms. Don't make it, and you die. Crucé la semana pasada. Sí, caminé tres días, tres noches caminando. Este, íbamos cuatro personas solo caminando por el desierto. How a cold day on the sun. By the end of the day, I only had one gallon of water. I started with two gallons. Un traguito nomás sin mojarse los labios. In the morning, started walking again. Walk all day. And then, still walked part of the night. Border Patrol has found the body. Patrol agents found the body of a man believed to be an illegal immigrant hanging from a tree in the desert. The deaths bring the total number of deaths by crossers in Arizona to 106 for this year. Authorities. People have died trying to cross the Mexican border into Arizona. There are no springs or streams, and no one lives here. No one. But still they keep coming, day after day, night after night. Some will move only during daylight because they fear snakes. Some refuse to wear hats. And I cannot help but wonder what kind of experiences produce people willing to take on such ground. It's sign of desperation. They pay better in the U.S. than here. I've just arrived from work, and I started at 7 in the morning, and then I finish at 6. And they pay me $6 for the whole day. If they could live this fairly good life at their places, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be here. With heat and thirst, the body temperature soars and the brain seems to cook. The flesh feels electric with pain as each cell screams out its complaint. People in such circumstances tear off their clothes in the hope of being cooled. 
Sometimes the border patrol finds corpses with the mouth stuffed with sand. One incident that I came upon was my eye caught this one bush and I noticed there's some legs. There was someone lying down underneath a, a bush. And I thought whoever it was was deceased, but when I got up on her, it was a female. She was lying down on her stomach, ready to die. You start blistering. A lot of blisters on, on your mouth, around your lips. Start hallucinating, and you start thinking, "Oh, I'm gonna die! I'm gonna die!" But, but you can't think clearly, because it's not—it's not you anymore. You start thinking about death. You start thinking if you're going to heaven or if you're going to hell or I mean like if you're gonna die in the desert and then you're not gonna be found by anybody and you're gonna be eaten by animals. The coyotes wanted to eat me. There are a lot of coyotes. The animals wanted to eat me. There were five and I was staying still and quiet. And they were approaching me, so I put my bottles around me to scare them off. And I had a lighter that I used to fend them off. And I was by myself. The animals were waiting for me to die. You don't even think. You don't even think. You don't have no, no brain to think about, about anything. People was going to the United States hoping to find a job and send money to their families back home and what they find is death. They never make it over there and they never make it back home. The desert tonight is an enormous theater full of tracks made by men and women and sometimes children, all inching north. They play a game here. We play a game here. And I Walked by producers Ann Hepperman and Kara Oler, who are best friends, housemates, bandmates, and produce the original music for this story. If you want to hear more Thirst short docs, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Monsters Under the Bed. Adolescent Kissing Games. The Preservation of 16mm Film. Ghost Recordings. AM Radio Transmissions. Balance. Lost in the Catacombs. Repetition. Composition. Historical, Historical darkness. darkness. Mirrors. Most of all, the world is a place where parts of holes are described. In an overarching paradigm of clarity and accuracy. The 
context of which makes possible an underlying sense of the way it all fits together despite our collective tendency not to conceive of it as such. But then again, the world without end is a place where souls are combined, but with an overbearing feeling of disparity, disorderliness. To ignore it is impossible without getting oneself in all kinds of trouble, despite one's best intentions not to get entangled with it so much. Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program through thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Since then we went ahead to fabricate a catalog of unstable elements, modicums, and particles with non-zero total strangeness for brief moments which amount to nothing more than tiny Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Approaching a density reminiscent of the infinite connectivity of the center of the sun, and therein lies the garment wisdom that has never died. Expectation leads to disappointment. If you don't expect something big, huge, and exciting, Usually, um, I don't know, just notice.